In moments of suffering, greatness is born. Correct. That is correct. The best thing anybody can do right now is line up your Rolodex. Whether you can get liquid or not, don't know. But if you can't, then you need to be attached to people who are and be great at locating opportunities and making great connections. Because you either have the money, like you said, or you have the tools. And if you're lucky enough to have both, great. But you got to bring one or two to the table, like the knowledge and the tools, or you got to bring the money. So if you're getting your butt kicked, no different than when I was getting my butt kicked in 2008 in the financial crisis. Well, that's true. And I didn't have the money to go buy properties, but I just knew we had to buy properties. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in US real estate. I'm your host, Reed Goosens, and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting-edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and or buy investing in the US, visit www www.reedgoosens.com. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Justin Brennan. Now, Justin is the CEO of Brennan Pohl Group, a private real estate firm focused on acquisitions and developments of apartments throughout the United States. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show to share his incredible insight and knowledge, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Justin. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? G'day. I mean, I, I need to change the Aussie. I need to get into the Aussie <laughs> accent, but that would, maybe I'd do it totally wrong. <laughs> G'day, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all good. It's all good. I, I know we have a, we're talking in the green room about a bit of a story back in the day. You went to Australia and had a, had a hell of a time. Well, yeah. Well, actually, when I was a luxury real estate agent, I was working for a company called Harcourts, mm -hmm. right? And they're yep. New Zealand-based, but Aussie as well, and massive following down there. And in Australia. So uh, I had a chance to go down there, I want to say in 2018, and speak in front of their international conference, a couple thousand people. But man, what a wild time, you Aussies. I love it because Aussies and Americans, we love each other. It's just, you know, you guys love us. We love you. It's a great time. That's awesome. So that was not too, too long ago. Is yeah. that when you were back in the luxury real estate? And this was before getting into syndications and stuff like that? Yeah, so I finished, I'd say I transitioned 100 or nearly 100% out of the luxury game in uh, 2021. So not too long ago. It was the work up to that because, like with anything, you know, if anybody's in like a nine to five or any kind of other career and they're trying to side hustle into something else and move the needle for themselves, you know, to just jump is fine. But, you know, I had to supplant income. So I was doing quite well in the luxury real estate space but had always built a portfolio with my business partner, Chris. We, heck, we'd started with a $100,000 condo. And that was in the midst of the financial crisis in 2010. And then we slowly grew that into kind of duplexes, fourplexes. And then we got into five to 10 unit deals. And then we realized, heck, if we want to scale, we need to do that, but probably out of state because we were in California. And it was just our money or dollar wasn't going to go as far. But that meant a whole other set of logistics because now you're out of our, you know, out of your backyard mentality. And now we're going into areas like the Midwest and Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, you know, and other areas that we're in today. I skipped over the first question that I usually ask my, all my guests, and that's rewind your clock and tell, rewind the clock, I should say, and tell me how you made your first of a dollar as a kid to help set the stage for people and your background. First dollar was actually, I mean, coming out of college, I, I was, I was, a got a, you know, I could have done the, hey, dad, where's my job thing? Because he was a, a builder guy, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of make my own way, at least have success and be able to say I did it on my own without having to, 
you know, go back to parents and you know, that whole reliability thing. So I did that. I was a title rep in San Diego for a few years, but then always wanted to, I knew that that was just a process and maybe a stepping stone. Went back to grad school, got my uh, master's degree, both in real estate development and business finance. And then came out into the real world, was doing development work with my dad for a few years up until the financial crisis. And then watching that all implode in 2008 and watching my dad lose everything. But it taught me some extremely valuable lessons, things that I've never forgotten and and take into business today. And then got into becoming an asset manager. So they always say, I mean, you're either going to play the positive or the negative side of real estate, depending on recessions and times. So obviously that was a really rough time for a lot of people, if they can remember that. And I got into the negative side of real estate, which was, I was an asset manager for a lot of the major banking institutions in the United States, handling their foreclosures and REOs and deviling them out to real estate agents to help the asset management side all around the country. And I did that for about two and a half years and then kind of saw the the needle moving from foreclosure, right? An REO where the bank controlled and owned the property to short sales. And that's kind of where the homeowner still owns it. Now they're just going to sell it for less than the loan on it, but they have full control of it. So it was perfect kind of transition period for me. I had my real estate broker's license and I said, well, gosh, I mean, I see the needle moving. Who better to help out a homeowner than somebody that's coming from the bank? So I literally came out with my real estate broker's license and we helped out a tremendous amount of people in the Southern California regions, specifically San Diego, do short sales and help them out in really tough financial times to either give them more time in the home, relieve themselves of the debt. But I was able to do that really well because I was coming from the bank. I knew exactly what the banks were thinking. So I could actually go in there and really help the homeowner out and navigate a very chaotic situation. And I did that until it became more traditional real estate. So that was 2010. And then it became more traditional real estate in 2012, 13. But at that time, we were also starting to buy real estate, right? And this was with my business partner because we were getting into, started with a $100,000 condo, right? And then we got into that stuff of duplexes and all that other stuff and kind of grew to where we're at today. So I was doing them side by side until I got to a point where I said, listen, it's time to go. And I made the full transition. You mentioned something earlier about the lessons you saw your dad learnt, learn from 2008. Mm. It's felt a little 2008-esque to me in the last 12 to 18 months in the commercial real estate side. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but volumes are down. I'm hearing banks are starting to not necessarily take back deals or some deals you see in the headlines. But what were some of those lessons that you look back on in 2008 and you're setting yourself up for for success today in, in a world where we're having hallmarks, maybe not as, as serious as 2008, but it's you know, it, it feels in some sectors that it could be. Don't over leverage, rule number one. So my dad was really good at making a lot of money. His income would mimic the real estate cycles because he was in the, the build and sell game, mm-hmm. right? Hey, let's build and then we sell, build and then we sell. And that's great, making huge pops and made millions of dollars, but he also lost millions of dollars because his his income would mimic the real estate cycle, right? It was great when it was great and it was bad when it was bad. And for me, I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, dad, how do you sleep? <laughs> like, mm. how do you even do this? And he's like, I don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I learned a lot through that. And I realized that the real game, because he built, gosh, probably four or 5,000 apartment units in his career, and then single family and some commercial stuff, et cetera, but in the multifamily space specifically, but he never kept any of them. 
and didn't keep equity in them. And I'm like, well, that's mistake number one. So for me, I went into it saying, well, when this happens again and we go back into this, yes, it's not as sexy to go and put capital and hold on to an asset for a long period of time. But the equity is really built in that. The true wealth is really built in that. The tax advantages are built into that. Refinancing and leveraging and kind of growth is built into that model. And yes, it requires more patience and more capital to sit longer. So it's not as fast of burn and turn, but you're also able to sleep at night because your tenants in a building are paying off your mortgage and paying down your debt and then cash flowing you and you're just growing wealth over time. And then every three, five, seven years, when interest rates are favorable, you refinance that property, pull cash out that's tax-free, and you keep copy, paste, and repeating that baby. So once I understood that game, it was a no-brainer. So that's where the apartment space and the multifamily really stepped in for me, is not over-leveraging, using passive income growth and tax benefits to grow wealth. Talk to me about your portfolio today and where you're acquiring assets. You mentioned you, you start looking outside of, of Southern California. What's the strategy and, and what's the sort of size you're going to, to going after these days? In simple terms, we want to be Walmart surrounded by Neiman Marcus, JCPenney, and Nordstrom, right? And I say that, <laughs> people are like, what? I say that because if you think about this for a moment, in good markets, people always shop at Target and Walmart. They're always doing well. In bad markets, people are always shopping at Target and Walmart. And more importantly, the wealthy have to shop at Target and Walmart too when you hit right. recessions. So the point being is if you are the B-class asset surrounded by all the A-class assets, then you are always full. Right? Good markets, you're full. Bad markets, you're full. So the B-class asset is always the best one to be in, in good markets and bad. And so that's been our philosophy is I want to be I'll call it the ugly duckling on the block, but I want to be the B-class asset in a great location surrounded by all the A's. And so that's what we look for in the assets we acquire in the locations as well. Are you looking at average household incomes when you look at that sort of stuff? When we're looking at markets to start with, it's always jobs and population growth, jobs and population growth. Because if you have good growth markets, right, the population tends to gravitate towards it. So it's always typical job uh, job um, growth of 2% or more, population growth of 1% or more per year. And that's kind of the 10,000 foot level. And then we start dropping into other little factors, location, location, location. We all know that in real estate, but some people tend to sacrifice it when they start seeing on paper, oh, look at the cash on cash, or oh, look at the cap rate, or oh, look how attractive, or look at the potential. I'm like, yeah, but... When markets change, and they will, and they have everybody fluctuates and gravitates towards job centers. And so, if you're in a, if you're in a, out in a, the boondock tertiary markets, you know when the markets are great, awesome. But when the markets are not, people, you're going to have vacancy problems, delinquency problems that are going to go through the roof as people pull away from yours to go find the jobs in a recession because they got to move to the job centers. Right. No, no, I, I completely agree with that. We have transitioned in the last. 12 to 18 months that we will not look at a property anymore with the average household income within a mile is less than $60,000. Okay. Yeah, ours is 56. So we're right in there. And the reason we do that is because we have had assets and we do have assets in those you know sub $50,000 and it's the delinquency we're seeing in this market and in when, when the pinch particularly 
in the recent interest rate hikes, the higher mm-hmm. for longer is hurting tenants and they can't pay for it anymore, right? So the mm-hmm. cost of living is going up and it's something we're not as a company willing to, you know, sacrifice on anymore. So we yeah. bought an asset earlier in the year in Tempe, Arizona, average household income with over $100,000 within a mile. It's a class C plus building built in the 70s, you know, f- flat roofs, chiller systems, but Sprouts is directly across the street. And so, oh, so, you, so you bought one with a chiller. Yep. Bought okay. with a chiller. Bought with a chiller. Are you are you getting the chiller system? Because you're talking about a chiller system that's one chiller for the entire complex. Mm-hmm. Yep, on a okay. loop system. Yep. And we're not afraid of those. But 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 to your point is like we are compared to the class A in the area. You know, we are three, four, five hundred dollars below them because we're that affordable. And we're also two and three bedrooms, so it's like everyone wants that. And you know, the fact that spout sprouts are across the street, like that's they're smarter than we are, right? We're just 100%. gonna follow them. And All so, these guys are running better data than you. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. We're we're the small fry, you know. We're 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 just. Uh, but that that's an example of a deal, and I can only point to one other deal in my portfolio over the last ten years. Twenty four different syndications we've done that has a better average household income within a mile, and so it's an example of something really to look at as you. You're you're talking about median household income, right? Medium household yep. income. Gotcha. Yep. So. It's a pretty, if you've got access to CoStar and I, you know, I'm sure you do, but we as a company now quickly screen. Like if that doesn't meet that $60,000, we're not looking at it. Particularly yeah. if you're going to go older vintage assets with with the boilers and the chillers and the problems you're going to have from that. Yep. Well, you've got to want to be paid back on the other end, which is a more resilient market. People want to live in it and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. No. And, and Tempe is coming back to earth, which is nice. The Phoenix markets uh, finally and some of the other areas in Austin and stuff are coming back to planet earth <laughs> so 100 percent, you know and, and that's and we can talk a lot about that but back to your portfolio you mentioned also ground up construction you know I, I happen to be a structural engineer former structural engineer work for a developer i've come from the they say the tools they come from uh the you know the, the equity uh the sort of financing side or you come from the tools i came from the tools sim- same similar to yourself what are you building right now and are you looking at stuff only to build in southern california or elsewhere across the country as well our partners and us we just completed a 160 unit deal in las vegas nevada Wow. That was a townhome build for rent type product, beautiful project called Nola Sky. And that's an up and coming kind of north, not north, but kind of middle central Las Vegas near the executive airport. But like Agora Developments building a master plan about a thousand yards away from us. So it's all coming our way. So that's a beautiful brand new construction, townhome style build for rent product, 160 unit built in 44 plexes. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's unique about that? is you can sell the entire 160-unit complex, or we also have 40 individual APNs for each fourplex. So there's options for exit, if that makes sense. Yep. So there's that one. And then we have a, a couple in San Diego. We have a 20-unit we're finishing entitlements on right now for permits. We probably won't build that one. We'll probably sell that off to a merchant builder that wants to build it. But that's a great property as well and a great location in San Diego. So yeah, all, all of that. ADU game, you're in Southern California too, but San Diego's huge on that because of the SB9 and SB10 laws and stuff that have happened, those, those Senate bills. Because of the challenges in the housing game in Southern California and the cost of housing, they're trying to say, hey, listen, we're going to make it super easy and streamlined for people to put little accessory dwelling units on the back of their homes. And it's only in certain areas, like urban zones and you know certain criteria. So it's not like someone's putting a triplex out in a <laughs> suburban market. So they're they're specific to high density zones. The only thing I see pro- the problem with the ADU game is the scale of it. As yep. a, as a 
as a syndicator, hence why you know, going out and building a BFR. We're actually building a 66-unit build for rent in St. Marcus, Texas. Same sort of thing, but we're doing duplexes. Great market, by the way. That, yeah. That's incredible market. So we've, we're doing the same thing, seeing a shift towards that. I, you know, probably a little bit late to the, to the cycle on that. But, um, but how much are you looking to continue to buy existing multifamily as we're coming into sort of this, you mentioned Tempe's and the Austins of the world coming back down to earth. Are you seeing opportunities right now in the existing space? Continue to add add value, and when the six other dudes before you've had already added all the value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's still plenty there. Uh, we are still in the beginning stages of the cycle event because, as you are well aware, the amount of bridge debt, variable rate financing that's been placed on apartment multifamily, commercial real estate in general, but let's say multifamily over the last three to five years is in the hundreds of billions. Mm -hmm. And all of that's coming due. And it's actually was starting to come due this year in 2023. A lot of people were able to raise some capital through capital calls and kick the can, can down the road into 2024. But between 2024 and 2025, things are going to go down. It's either going down, meaning they're going to do some workouts and do workouts, some of them. Some are going back to banks and some will get sold at discounts. That's how it's going to get done. But it's different than, like, say, the foreclosure financial crisis of 2008, which was residential-based, because that was very public, right? And it was very on CNBC, your television screen, you're seeing people kicked out on the curb, and it became viral, right? Different, because the commercial space game is done behind the scenes. So a lot of this game of acquiring these deals and working these deals isn't going to be out in front as much. It's going to be, hey, do you know the asset manager at one of these debt funds and we can get in there and take some bad debt off their books type right. scenario. So the negotiations are behind the scenes. It's not on the front page of CNBC, even though the debt problem is massive. And you right. have a handful of debt funds around the country that have done a mass majority or a, a vast majority of the variable rate funding, right? There's a handful of them right now that are have a lot of challenges. And well, so they're Arba about to do some is workouts. a big one. What's that? Uh, Arba, MF1, Yep. Um, MF seven just did. It was MF one or MF seven. MF one is MF1. the the lender on a yep. lot of some big portfolios of syndicators, yep. and I think that's the interesting. You Benefit say Street. that Benefit Street, yes, yep. Bridge Bridge Financial Group. There's a lot of groups out there now. I think that's the interesting part about what I mentioned earlier about feeling in a recession, but it's not necessarily on the front page, right? Mm. It is felt recessionary to me as an operator. Yeah. Based on the data we're getting from our delinquency and our tenants and our and our yep. rents, like we had really good rent growth coming into the summer this year, yep. yep. And then we saw it fall off a cliff. Yeah, and we and we saw and, delinquencies and rise. Delinquency. Right. It was something something in the summer. And this is not just Phoenix or Texas. It was happening across the country. Yeah, and we've got five MSAs that we're in, and we're like, what the hell is going on now? Some some markets were worse than others. Phoenix have been has been worse, and some are saying, yep. oh, it's the deliveries and all this sort of stuff. But I'm like. My 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 rental check, my tenant base isn't for a thousand dollar studio. They ain't going and paying seventeen hundred bucks for right. the new build one bedroom. Yeah, it's not the, yeah, the class A is going to get hit by class A in the short term, right? In terms of supply right. issues, so that's true. But that, I don't know yeah. if a class C is getting whacked with the new deliveries. No. And it have to be like I, I'm not the economist, and I don't have the gray hair to say it's not not going to get whacked. I just don't know if that's the direct result. It has to have an impact. I just don't know if that's the direct result. I, I think there's more of an influx of 
re-household formations. I think I saw a lot, in my opinion, we saw a lot of people with money in their pocket in COVID and were like, I'm going to move out of my parents' house or I'm going to, you know, mm. I don't need that, that roommate anymore, particularly in the C plus B minus space. And now I think there's a little bit more of a shift going the other way. I don't have the real-time data, but it just feels like that. And then back to the yeah. point of, you know, I'd love your two cents on it is, is just the, you know, I'm part of a bunch of masterminds, which I know you are, and we're going to get to it here in a second, but hearing some of the distress that's happening out there, but it's not in the public eye and investors are getting whacked. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of pain, right? Yeah. It's, it's already happening today. And I just, I don't know how that's going to play out. For all of us in the syndication space, you know, does the syndication become the dirty word? <laughs> well, when they say in moments of suffering, greatness is born. Correct. That is so correct. So the best thing anybody can do right now is line up your Rolodex. Whether you can get liquid or not, don't know. But if you can't, then you need to be attached to people who are and be great at locating opportunities and making great connections. Because you either have the money, like you said, or you have the tools. And if you're lucky enough to have both, great. But you got to bring one or two to the table, like the knowledge and the tools, or you got to bring the money. So if you're getting your butt kicked, right, it's no different than when I was getting my butt kicked in 2008 in the financial crisis. Well, that's true. And I didn't have the money to go buy properties, but I just knew we had to buy properties. So I went and found my buddy, Christopher Poli, hence the Brennan Poli group. And I said, listen, Chris, I know we need to buy some properties. I can't do it right now, but I can go find the deals. I can underwrite them. I can put them together. I can manage them. I can do. Ev I can run the company. I can run everything. I can bring sweat equity up to yin yang. I said, what I need right now is capital for the down payment and somebody to sign on the loans. And then I said, for that, we'll do work out a deal. So we did. And then I became kind of run everything and he just collect checks and we both collect checks, but we would split that. And we started $100,000 condo, Marietta, California. And then we grew that into duplexes and fourplexes and then five to 10 unit deals and then 20 to 50 unit deals. And then now we're doing 100 plus unit deals throughout the country. But that's how it started. And I would say the same thing here is if you were getting your butt kicked right now, it's very easy to go tuck your head in the sand. But the only way out of that is going to be to make sure you're connecting yourself with great people and be an incredible deal finder. Because um, I got a feeling, and I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> I hope I'm wrong, but I got a feeling that what's coming down the pike is actually going to be worse than 2008-9. It's going to have nothing to do with real estate taking us in. Real estate took us into the financial crisis. It's not taking us into this one. This one's going to be currency-based, and you can see it coming. I mean, there's a reason why they don't care about the debt and it's getting pumped up. There's a reason that the fiat dollars, we know it, the world's reserve currency is on its last leg. And there's a reason why the Federal Reserve has started the digital dollar. There's a reason why China has started the, the digital yuan. There's a reason why you have the Fed now and the CBD systems and all of the other stuff that's coming to fruition. There's a reason all this is happening, and that's to move the US dollar off the world's reserve currency. And when that happens, the day of printing money like we're printing now is gone. And what that looks like in the short term is probably mm. chaos. I, I don't know, but it's not pretty. It's not pretty. And I think the US government, the Federal Reserve are trying to find a way to do this with as least pain as possible because the 32 trillion in debt or whatever they want to call it now is massive. And the reason they're going to have to lower interest rates next year, like in 2024, they keep talking about it, lower interest rates, lower. Well, the interest rates aren't going down unless the job reports show otherwise, except, except that I also didn't know 
that a vast majority of the treasuries, right, that are at lower interest rates are coming due next year during an election year. So they're going to have to reduce the interest rates so that way the debt service that the U.S. government is paying doesn't triple overnight and implode the entire thing. You see where I'm going with it? So what they're basically, what, what Jerome Powell's sitting there looking at saying, okay, well, the jobs report and certain data doesn't really give us the indication we should lower interest rates, but we're going to have to do it anyways, because if we don't, and all these treasury bills come due, and now they're kicked up at these higher interest rates that we're stuck at, our debt service as the US government is going to literally double and triple overnight. And it's going to make that $32 trillion look like peas in a bucket. Mm-hmm. So we have yep. to lower the interest rates because it's either higher inflation or implode the U.S. economy and right. government. And you, right. like, they're, they're literally in that situation now. So they're willing to accept some inflation and knowing that, hey, we drop interest rates. Yeah, we understand stuff's going to kick back up again, but it's either that or our debt service is going to triple. Yep. No, I, I agree. And I speak to a lot of different folks about that exact same thing. It was always going to be a game of chicken of how long they could they could keep interest rates higher for when, when they're going to pay on their own debts. Um, it's a problem not just the US is facing, it's a ca- happening across the globe. Mm-hmm. And this has been a very interesting phenomenon where 2008 was a US problem that percolated across the globe. Today is yeah. like we all had COVID, we all printed money, they all, everyone has now got high inflation and everyone's sort of in the same you know the same headlines you're seeing of you know cost of living crisis is having happening in Europe. It's happening in Australia. It's happening in Asia. Like everyone, all governments are facing the same thing. Coupled with the fact that you've also got when you've got the U.S. dollar at such a high, the U.S. Treasury's at a reserve currency is so high. When other countries are borrowing in that in the U.S. dollar, their debt service goes up as well. And yeah. so the, now the U.S. is only focused on the U.S. itself, but there is are other. The higher U.S. dollar causes political unrest across the U- across the rest of the world because people are borrowing in that reserve currency. So, uh, that's those- the reason the BRICS, right? You right. kind of watch the BRICS right. thing, right? So, right. yeah, do, people are keep asking, "What's going to be the thing that change? What's the next crisis? Mm-hmm. Currency? Yeah, it's currency, one hundred percent. It's staring at all of us. Yep. And if we don't want to look in the mirror and pay attention to it. Then we're going to all of a sudden wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, that seemed like it happened overnight. Right. <laughs> no, it didn't. Right. It's been ongoing for really, it started yeah. during COVID because that's when China started to launch their digital wand. And, mm-hmm. and Jerome Powell stated during 2020 that they were going to start the digital dollar. But digital currency has been around probably for at least a decade. But how it's used, correct, in transitioning yeah, yeah, yeah. off yep. the fiat. Yeah. Right. The yep. fiat US yeah, yeah. dollar, because the dollar has been the world's reserve currency since 1971 mm-hmm. when Nixon took us off the gold standard. And ever since then, the US has been the world's reserve currency. All world reserve currency, if you look back in history, not that history is any indication of future results, but what else do you have to go by? Most world's reserve currencies last 40 to 50 years. Mm-hmm. Most. If you do the data, 1971 to where we're at today, I think we're at around 51 years, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Good math. Carry the one. <laughs> <laughs> so we're right there. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I think it's, it's, I agree. I completely agree. And I was speaking at a conference about this with some people way smarter than I am about this exact same thing. And that will cause some, a lot of turbulence if the US dollar is not um, the, the, the world currency. It's inevitable that it's going to happen and it's going to shift. You see, that's why you see 
the governments around the world starting cracking down on on these digital wallets and digital currencies and and having a plan in place to 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 con- not control them um, what's the word I'm trying to look for to like go and create policy around them so they can profit from them as well because that's that's part of the reason they can't they don't have any control right now and that's where it was starting to get dangerous uh, and then we saw a massive crash in bitcoin I'm not an expert again either but it, you can see the hallmarks of governments starting to get the hell on board because they know it's it's a train that's already left the station yeah, you're right. The governments are trying to make sure that they can contain because if they don't have some mechanisms of control over the currencies, right? The central banks, they're screwed and they lose a lot of power and they know That's that. Right. That's right. Well, mate, I'd love to keep chatting with you, but we have to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, question number one is tell me uh, the practice, uh, the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals. Mm. Uh, so I have, I read this, I've been reading this book, almost finished with it, Atomic Habits. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that book. I haven't, but I, yeah. I know about it. Yeah. By James Clear. Incredible book. The thing I've been focused on now is habit stacking, meaning if you're trying to change something or get a better habit, you want to plug it in between things you're already doing that are good. So wake up at 5 a.m. After I wake up at 5 a.m., I'll make my bed. After I make my bed, I'll do 10 push-ups. Right. So you're stacking things in you want to do inside of things you already do. After I've done 10 push ups, I'll make a cup of coffee. After I have a cup of coffee, I'll listen to 10 minutes of meditation and affirmations. So I've been doing that because if you master your morning, you master your day. I'm a huge believer in that. You know, you master your morning, you master your day, and you get that rhythm going in the morning, and it's going to make your day incredible. If you get out of rhythm in the morning, that's when you feel like, oh gosh, like you're just going on tangents and it ends up being a bad day, as you would say. So that's huge, you know, doing the morning routines and having that lined up and then really trying to focus on habit stacking to do better at things that you're not good at. Awesome. Question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? In the career side, between my dad and probably Rudy Medina. So Rudy Medina is a co-general partner on some of our deals. I've known him since I was young. He's actually Grant Cardone's former partner here in San Diego. So I don't know if you know this, but Grant Cardone started his multifamily career here in San Diego. Hmm. No, I didn't. And his first two multifamily deals were with Rudy Medina here in San Diego because Grant Cardone was living on uh, Camino de la Costa in La Jolla, walked across the street one day, met a broker lady, ended up buying that house with some partners on the waterfront for 4 million and change, flipped it for 9 million and change. That was his big chunk of money. And from there, he ended up meeting Rudy and a few other people got into multifamily. One deal was a 27 or 30 unit deal in Point Loma, San Diego. The other one was a 47 unit deal up in Vista. They partnered on together, but he's been influential in understanding capital markets, financing, how to structure deals and how to deal with stress. You know, Dealing with high stressful moments because it's going to happen and you don't want to panic and you need to make sure, you know, at least in my line, you got to get your big boy pants on and knowing how to maneuver through those moments without losing your, you know what, yep. critically important. Yep. Yeah, yep. 100%. Question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business? It could be a physical tool like a journal or a phone, mm-hmm. or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. What is it? So we use Syndication Pro, at least on the multifamily side to help the investor relations. But for me, I live and die by my task list on my phone. So I seriously, I, you know, you go in, I, I have an iPhone, so I have the reminders. Okay. But I have them all like categorized by properties and by what it is. So all my tasks are in there and I can click on this and it's got everything that I have. I mean, it's super 
resourceful. And that way I live and die by the tasks every day. And that's how at least I feel accomplished when I can go through and check all this stuff off every day for moving the needle. Love it. Love it. Question number four is in one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? In one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in my career? And what have I learned from that? I would say the biggest failure was a recent deal last year that we actually walked away from. It was a 200-unit deal in Shirts, Texas, just north of San Antonio, south of San Marcos. Marco, is it Marcos or Marcos? I, I own um, Shirts. We're in escrow, got in, money went hard. Fed started to raise the interest rates at astronomical speeds, and, and as we all watched happen, we were eight hundred thousand dollars hard in the deal, and we had to make the decision to either put a square peg in a round hole and close that deal, or walk from the deal because the financials just kept eroding. After probably two weeks of hyperventilating <laughs> with our partners, we finally made the decision. I said, listen, I'm not going to risk $12 million of investor money. Not going to happen. I'm willing to risk and walk away from our 800 grand because we don't risk investor money until we close. So it was our 800 grand. We ended up walking from that deal and taking it in the shorts. By doing that, doing the right thing. Thankfully, it was the right thing. Absolutely the right thing now. All those investors ended up coming into another deal that we bought in San Diego that was an 80 unit that was a $22 million deal because of how we handled that situation. They're like, wow, we watched you guys take it. And because of how you handled that and did the right thing, we're, we're on board with you guys. So I consider that a huge failure, but also a huge win. But it was painful, right? Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to do to walk away from that, but it was the right thing. It's happened. I, I own a deal in San Antonio that the exact same thing happened. Someone was trying to buy and they couldn't close and we end up taking their money. So it's, it's, we don't want to do that, but it's it was just the market shifted so quickly. Yeah. Last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that will be in your sphere? Where do they go? Instagram is probably the easiest one. Justin C. Brennan. Justin C. Brennan on Instagram. Follow me. We're giving good tips and advice, free information if you're looking to get into the multifamily game or any of that stuff. Uh, love to be a resource for anyone. So, Awesome. Awesome, my friend. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to reflect some of the things I took away. Um, I think it's so important that you've got that perspective of where you came from in 2008 and how that applies to today. And talking about you know the the, the public the publicity of 2008 the, the the homes crashing versus what we're seeing play out behind the scenes in the commercial space because it isn't in the public eye as much and i think that is something something's coming and something's happening in the terms of defaults in this commercial real estate space. So as listeners of this show, I think it's really, really important to get yourself and prepare yourself for what is coming, which is going to be an incredible buying opportunity in my in my opinion, and I'm sure in yours as well, Justin. And then I really you know, enjoyed um, everything around your mindset and like knowing that if you have the right mindset, putting your big boy pants on, you can go through anything, right? And we're all going to face it. We're in the real estate space. I remember someone saying to me on stage one day, you haven't been in real estate long enough. You haven't done a capital call. And I was like, really? Like, you know, and that that was such a, you know, you, you, you're you not that, that you want to do that with anyone, but you're putting on your big boy pants when things go bad and being able to take it in the shorts like you did on that particular deal in Shirts, Texas. You show investors that you got your big boy pants on and you can play this big boy game. It comes back in spades. So did I leave anything out? No, that's it, man. Yeah, just treat like you talked on the investor side, uh, transparency. You know, I'd say any capital calls we've ever had to do is, you know, just be in good communication with your investors. The last thing you want to do is go MIA and silent because then they know there's a problem, more importantly, and they don't and they 
don't trust you to resolve it. Right. So, but if you step up and have good communication and just don't bring a problem to the table, if you have not provided or thought through a couple potential solutions. Correct. So don't yep. just go throw problems at the wall and see what sticks. Like, okay, you got a problem, but think through a couple solutions and offer those on the table when you're talking to investors to say, hey, what would we like to do? Or here's the plan. Yep. It's relieving to them because they're trusting you with their money and you need to take that very seriously. Yep. Love it. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of day to come on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. All right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Justin. Remember, you can go check him out on Justin C. Brennan on Instagram. Check out everything that he is doing in his world. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. You can give this show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you podcast. And we're going to do this all again next week. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.